last year at some point, I don't remember exactly with, but in the year 2015, the print and broadcast media, CNN, the National Graf uh, Geographic magazine, and others, English newspapers and continental ones, carried a story claiming that the bones believed to belong to St. John the Baptist had been found not in Israel, as you might expect, but in the most unlikely of all possible places, in the ruins of a 4th century monastery on an island called Sieti Ivan, St. John's Island, off Bulgaria's Black Sea coast. The remains, small fragments of a skull and an arm, were found buried under an altar in a tiny sandstone box with the Baptist's name on it and the date of his birth, the 24th of June. Now, announcements like this are usually greeted with skepticism and cynicism in equal measure. So the bones were subjected to radiocarbon dating and genetic testing in an Oxford University library. And the results showed that the bones all came from a single Middle Eastern male who lived in the early first century, consistent with John the Baptist. Now, did archaeologists really find John's body? Whether the bones belonged to John the Baptist or not, the story shows that he exerts a powerful hold on our imagination, so powerful a hold that 2,000 years after his death, he's still making headlines in the secular press. But he also exerts a hold on the theological imagination, and Catholic theology tells us that the Baptist is not a collection of dry bones on an island in the Black Sea. He is a living presence. And to see how, you have only to look at the icon above the altar. He's the figure on the right, opposite the image of the Mother of God. This iconographic arrangement is called a deesis, a style of iconography that goes back before the ninth century. It shows the Virgin and John interceding at the throne of judgment on behalf of humanity. The icon is not just a decorative painting on a wall. It is a revelation of what is taking place in the liturgy at this very moment. And incidentally, right above St. John the Baptist is the image of St. Benedict, who must have had a special devotion to John the Baptist because when he arrived on Mount uh, Monte Cassino, he built a chapel to St. John the Baptist. But one more thing about the deesis. John appears a little more presentable than St. Matthew describes him in his gospel. A voice crying out in the desert is another way of saying that he had a fierce and untamable quality about him. It probably was as difficult for his Jewish contemporaries in the first century to find categories to describe him as it is for homeless in the 21st. He is disturbing and compelling in equal measure what we would be tempted to dismiss as some kind of religious zealot, someone who is perhaps a half-bubble short of plum. But John is also a prophet, and prophets in Israel had a habit of speaking truth to power, and that made him dangerous. Herod thought so, which is why we have come to think of John as a head on a platter, the victim of a dinner party gone terribly wrong. St. Matthew's Gospel gives us the story 
Richard Richard Strauss provided the music in his opera Salome, famous or maybe infamous for the final scene when Salome performs an erotic dance with John's severed head. Prophetic, tragic, or eccentric, whatever adjective you choose to describe John the Baptist, there's ultimately nothing warm and fuzzy about him. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah and Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region around the Jordan were going out to see him. This is how Matthew introduces us to John. In order to grasp what it means, especially in the season of Advent, we need to see that the passage is woven together from a series of very carefully selected texts of the Old Testament. Daniel 2, Isaiah 40, 2 Kings 1, Leviticus 11, Zechariah 13, and Malachi 4. Now, it may sound a little bit like Bible bingo, but at at the time of Christ, these texts were the source of intense speculation about the coming of the Messiah. Living under the burden of foreign occupation by Rome, they looked for a liberator, a Messiah king, who would free them from the domination of the pagans. And then, out of the desert, John the Baptist appeared, dressed, looking, sounding, and acting like the prophetic texts had been fulfilled. And lo and behold, instead of preaching love, peace, joy to a population oppressed by high taxes, political corruption, and repression, he tells them to reform their lives and bear the fruit of repentance. It must have seemed as though he was preaching to the choir. It's a message he should have been preaching to the Romans. I said earlier that John the Baptist is not a collection of bones somewhere in Bulgaria, but a living presence that helps define the Advent liturgy. We tend to listen to the gospel as though it were ancient history, an account of what happened 2,000 years ago. John appeared, Jesus did, John said. All the verbs are in the past tense. But the icon above the altar tells us that in this place and in the Eucharist, John is our contemporary. We're all together in the same room with him. It's not a question of what he said or did or meant for Herod, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but what he says it means for us. And what he tells us is that the only way to prepare for the celebration of the Incarnation is to live and act like we are different people, even if we don't feel like we're different people, because it's not about what we feel. And that's what bearing the fruit of repentance really means. If Christmas is an encounter with Israel's Messiah rather than a fat man in a red suit, then Christmas must also be about repentance. The word in Greek literally means to think differently afterwards or even backwards and signifies a change of thinking that leads to a change of heart that ultimately leads to a change of behavior that ultimately leads to being a different person altogether. This isn't about virtue signaling. It's about virtuous living. This is how John the Baptist wants us to spend Advent, alert, watchful, fully conscious, awake, becoming different. Do it, and we will turn Christmas upside down. Christ will not come to us on Christmas Day. We will go to him. And and anyway, isn't that the way it's supposed to be?